I invite your attention to the text this morning, 2 Chronicles chapter 15. Uh, the text contains a prophecy from a prophet named Azariah. Azariah was prophesying during the reign of King Asa, king of Judah, during the time of the divided kingdom. And this statement that Azariah makes that I want to focus on principally is his words from verse 2. Here they are again. The Lord is with you while you are with him. <clears throat> if you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will forsake you. As I said, this was spoken to Asa, one of the good kings of Judah. One of the best, really, in 2 Chronicles 14.2. The writer says, Asa did what was good and right in the eyes of the Lord his God. There was probably no better king since Solomon and none who surpassed Asa in his righteousness other than Hezekiah and Josiah following him. But the timing of this statement that uh, the prophet makes to Asa is very interesting because it follows a victory, a victory in which Asa relied upon God. Uh, an army of Ethiopians having one million men and 300 chariots came up against Asa who had only about 480,000 troops. And yet Asa and the people of Judah prevailed over the Ethiopian army. So there's this great victory and then God sends a prophet to issue a warning. Now why does he do that? It may be because the most perilous times for us spiritually are right after great victories. That's when we let down our guard, and that's when we're most susceptible to pride, which is a great pitfall for any king or ruler. And that's why we're turning to Ezra's prophecy this morning. I think it's a very good word for members of the church, people who have been Christians for a long time, people like us who are very blessed, who are comfortable in our lives, Nobody's life is perfect, and we all have our challenges, but we get used to things. We get complacent. And that's the most perilous time for us spiritually, is when we're most comfortable. It's great on the week of Thanksgiving to dwell upon our blessings, but it's no time to let our guard down, because the devil is always at work. He's always tempting. He's always challenging us, and we must always be ready. So let this morning's text be a reminder to us. It's a, it's a prophecy containing three propositions, and we're just going to go through them one at a time from 2 Chronicles chapter 15, verse 2. Here's the first one. First of all, the prophet said to the king, The Lord is with you while you are with him. And we'll get to the condition in just a moment, but first of all, let's just take a moment to marvel at the possibility Azariah presents to Asa. The possibility that God could actually dwell with us. I mean, just, just take a moment to marvel at that. The Lord is with you. Isn't that amazing that that's even possible? To have the presence of the Lord in our lives? Now, there is a general sense of His presence, His omnipresence, which means that God is everywhere all the time. Being God, that, that's true. He's the sustainer of the universe. 
of Christ who said that he uh, holds the world together, he sustains the world by the word of his power, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. If the, God took his mind off of us just for a moment, the earth would cease to exist. And so there's that sense of God's nature. He is omnipresent, but there's more than that implied here in the text. What Azariah is talking about is his special presence with his people. There's a special way in which God is present, that he's not with the wicked. And it's a blessing. Psalm 21 verse 6 says, You make him glad with the joy of your presence. And Psalm 73 verse 28 says, For me it is good to be near God. That's true for all of us. It is good to be near God. I want you to think about it in two ways. First of all, think about God's presence in terms of our experience of His presence in our lives. What I mean by that is through faith, we can develop a heightened reality of God in our lives. We can have a fuller, more intense, more certain, more joyful, more satisfying experience of God in our lives through our worship and our prayer lives and just the peace that surpasses all understanding. We have that experience of it in our lives. And the second way I want you to think about the joy of God's presence is think about it in terms of his providential acts on our behalf. He is an involved God. We're not deists who believe that God created the world and wound it up like a clock and was just sitting back arms crossed, watching everything take place. No, we don't live in the age of miracles now, but God is still active using natural law that he created to interact in his mysterious way on our behalf. He answers prayer. He cares about us. He sees what's going on with us, and he intervenes according to his will. He is present in our life. Just take a moment to marvel at that possibility. And having done that, now we... Marvel at a second thing, at his desire to be present with us. The whole story of Scripture is about how God wants to be with his people and how time after time he has made provisions to dwell with us. I want to just share a few passages with you from the Old and New Testaments. Here's Leviticus chapter 26, verses 11 and 12. I will make my dwelling among you, and my soul shall not abhor you, and I will walk among you and will be your God, and you shall be my people. Look at Ezekiel 37, 26, and 27. I will make a covenant, covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will set them in their land and multiply them and will set my sanctuary in their midst forevermore. My dwelling place shall be with them and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Go over to the book of Hebrews, chapter 8, verse 10. The new covenant, what is it? This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And then go to the end of the New Testament, Revelation 21, verse 3. What is the promise there? The dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. This is the whole story of scripture. Time and time we sin, we fall away. 
We separate ourselves from God and God makes a way back because He desires to dwell with us in His presence. And this is a true proposition. It's amazing every time that God initiates the reconciliation. John says in 1 John 4.10, we love Him because He first loved us. What a beautiful thing to be pursued by God for Him to want to dwell with us. There's a popular idea, <clears throat> excuse me, we, um, we can drift away from Him, and that's something that's being warned here in this, in this passage. If we're not careful, we can drift away. God is with us while we are with Him. God doesn't move. I, the Lord, do not change. Malachi chapter 3, verse 6. He is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. He is a rock that cannot be moved. And as long as we were with him, are with him, he is with us. You think about Samson. What a great example. Samson was strong as long as he was with the Lord. As long as he kept his Nazarite vow and he was fighting for God's people, he had his strength. But when he went to the Philistines and got with that evil woman, Delilah, and she cut his hair and he left the Lord, his strength left him. And it wasn't until he came back to God that his strength returned. That's how it is with all of us. The Lord is with you while you are with him. He's not the one who moves. We move. And it's up to us to make it so that we are with him again. That's the first part of that proposition. Now, if we return to the prophecy, 2 Chronicles 15, 2, here's the second part. And the second and third part are just elaborations on the first. We said, first of all, the Lord is with you while you are with him. That's a conditional statement. And so it's not by coincidence that the second and third parts both begin with that little word if, which is a key word for any condition. So here is the second part of the prophecy. Number two, if you seek him, he will be found by you. If you seek him, he will be found by you. Seeking, that's a key term in this text. If you have your Bibles open to 2 Chronicles 14, look at a few examples here. How many times seeking the Lord comes up? Starting 2 Chronicles 14, verse 4, talking about the reign of Asa, king of Judah, he commanded Judah to seek the Lord, the God of their fathers, and to keep the law and the commandment. Go down to verse 7. He said to Judah, let us build these cities and surround them with walls and towers, gates and bars. The land is still ours because we have sought the Lord our God. We have sought him and he has given us peace on every side. Go to the next chapter, chapter 15, verse 4. When in their distress they turned to the Lord, the God of Israel, and sought him, he was found by them. And then look at verse 12 of 2 Chronicles 15. They entered into a covenant to seek the Lord, the God of their fathers, with all their heart and with all their soul, but that whoever would not seek the Lord, the God of Israel, should be put to death, whether young or old. They swore an oath to the Lord with a loud voice and with shouting, with trumpets and horns, and all of Judah rejoiced over the oath, for they had sworn with all their heart and had sought him with their whole desire 
and he was found by them. How many times does that word seek or the past tense sought, how many times does it appear in those chapters? Over and over and over again. It's a key idea here. And it's all connected to the prophet's promise. If you seek him, he will be found by you. Now he's talking to God's covenant people. The people of Judah. At this time they were more or less faithful to God. Asa had been leading reforms to destroy the idols. He removed all the idols except for the high places, which was the, one of the um, blemishes on his record. Separated him from Hezekiah and Josiah. But for the most part, the people were faithful. And the question is, in this state of faithfulness, why is he telling them to seek the Lord? Shouldn't he say something like, stay put, don't go anywhere, you're right where you need to be. Why would he say, seek the Lord, when they're already with him? I think that's an important question to think about. And the answer is this. In the world, we have a tendency to drift. We get to the right place and we don't stay there very long, do we? Circumstances change, our hearts change, we suffer a loss, we get discouraged, we grow weary, whatever it is, and we drift. It's like the world is the ocean and we're in a boat and we're going to drift away if we don't pay attention to where we are. Now, over and over again in the Bible, we're warned about this drifting. I don't have a lot of time to go through this, but really quickly, look at, uh, look at these warnings. Do not drift away from what you have heard. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1. Let us pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. Ephesians 4, 11 and 12 not to be carried away by every wind of doctrine, by human, human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. So don't drift away from what you've heard from the Word of God. Number two, don't drift away from your confidence in God's ability to bless you. James says we should pray, but let us do it with faith, with no doubting. He who doubts is like a wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let not that man think that he'll receive anything from the Lord. Number three, do not drift away from the true God to mute idols, as it is said in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 2. Number four, do not drift away from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Paul said, I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve, that you will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. 2 Corinthians 11 verses 3 and 4. And then finally, do not drift away from the grace which strengthens you. Hebrews 13 verse 9. All these warnings, why? Because we tend to drift. The world is like an ocean. We're in a boat. What happens when you're in a boat on the ocean? You'll drift if you're not careful, if you don't pay attention. And there's two things that you can do to fight it. Now, in a real situation... You would uh, do one or the other, but we're going to kind of break the metaphor a little bit here and think about doing both at the same time. So the first thing that you can do to fight the drift is you drop anchor. You drop anchor and that will keep you right where you need to be, right? What is the Christian's anchor? Hebrews chapter 6 verse 19 says, Our hope is a sure and steadfast 
anchor of the soul. So hold on to your hope in Christ. Know that this world is not all there is. We're passing through to a better place. And that's what we're living for. That's your anchor. It doesn't change. Nobody can take that away from you. Jesus says, no one can snatch them out of my hand. So first of all, to fight the drift, you drop anchor. But secondly, you row. You row. You keep paddling, which is analogous to seeking. You seek. Even though you're already there, you keep pursuing. You keep searching for God. You keep seeking His will for your life. You stay fighting for your faith. Look up, examine your surroundings. Are you moving away from God? Row back to where he is. It takes effort to seek the Lord. Jeremiah adds to what Azariah says to Asa in Jeremiah 29, 13, saying this, You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. So seekers have to search hard. They have to, to use effort, Bible study, prayer. We're talking about worship. We're talking about fellowship with the saints. We're talking about encouraging one another, not giving up hope. You drop anchor and you row. You seek. And God makes a promise. If you seek me, you will find me. Jesus said this in Matthew 7, verse 7, Seek and you shall find. It's so different from the false gods who can't make any promises, let alone, if you seek me, you will, be, you will find me. Do you remember the, the contest on Mount Carmel between Elijah and the prophets of Baal? Elijah set up these two altars, and the idea was we put meat on both altars, and you pray to your gods and see if they'll set the offering on fire. I'll pray to my God, the true God of Israel, and we'll see which God answers our prayers. And do you remember what the prophets of Baal did? They cried out to their God all morning long. For hours they cried out. They cut themselves until their arms gushed with blood and nothing happened. They sought him and they sought Baal with all their heart, you could even say. But he wasn't found because he wasn't there. But then you look at God, the true and living God. The God of Elijah, Elijah prayed to him and he responded and he lit the offering on fire. There was a, a trench of water surrounding the altar and the fire licked all the water up out of the trench so that it was dry. And there was no doubt in anybody's mind who the true and living God was that day. He was the God who when he is sought, he allows himself to be found. And it doesn't take a lot of sensationalism, a lot of crying out and cutting of the arms and showboating or anything like that. You look at Hannah in 1 Samuel chapter 1, and she prayed silently. Her lips were moving, but she was not making a sound. And the Lord heard her prayer, and he responded to her. That's the God who's making a promise to us this morning through the prophet Azariah. If you seek me, you will find me. Here's the third part of it. Another condition. The Lord is with you while you are with him. If you seek him, he will be found. Here's the third part. 
If you forsake him, he will forsake you. I want to go back to 2 Chronicles. I haven't talked about the King Asa a whole lot, but I think his story is important to understanding the reason this prophecy was spoken and, and understanding the truth of this prophecy, sadly, especially the last part of it. The first part, the beginning of Asa's reign, proved the truth of the second proposition. If you seek him, he will be found. Asa sought after him, and he found him. But the last part of his reign, sadly, proves the third proposition we're discussing this morning. It proves that if you forsake, the God, if you forsake God, he will forsake you. With the exception of the five years of war with Ethiopia, the first 35 years of Asa's reign was fairly peaceful and prosperous. And then an enemy closer to home, Baasha, king of Israel, the northern kingdom, came up against Judah and fortified Ramah, which is a city just north of Jerusalem, so that he could control the trade routes going east to west and north to south. It was basically like a siege on the city of Jerusalem, keeping the goods from, from getting down. It was a strategic city in Ramah. What did Asa do? When he defeated the Ethiopians, he relied totally upon God. And this is what the prophets were constantly encouraging these kings to do. Don't go make treaties with other nations. Don't get involved with the godless neighbors around you. Trust in the Lord your God. If you seek him, he will be found. Don't forsake the Lord. But what did Asa do in his weakness? He went to an even worse person than, than his foe, Baasha of Israel. He went to Ben-Hadad, king of Syria. And Ben-Hadad was powerful. Asa cleaned the temple out of all the silver and gold and gave it to this pagan king who didn't believe in the Lord God. And Ben-Hadad made good on the treaty. He routed Baasha's armies and drove them back to Samaria. He cleaned out Ramah and made it politically peaceful for Judah again. And then God sent another prophet, Hanani, the seer. And he reminded Asa about how the Lord delivered the Ethiopians into his hand and he rebuked him for relying on the king of Syria. And instead of repenting, Asa threw that prophet into prison. And so God punished him. He afflicted him with some kind of disease of the foot. And two years later he died. And we don't know what the disease was. Some people say gout. It seems a lot more serious than gout because it was his undoing, maybe a blockage of the blood vessels in the legs or something like that to cut off circulation and led to gangrene. That's an, another idea. Whatever it is, we know that the disease was caused by God as punishment for what he did, and it was eventually his undoing. There are even hints here in the text that he could have repented and been made well 
But as with his political situation, so was his medical situation. Instead of relying upon God, he relied upon the physicians. Chapter 16, verse 12. In the 39th year of his reign, Asa was diseased in his feet, and his disease became severe. And watch for these key words again. Even in his disease, he did not seek the Lord, but he sought help from the physicians. He wouldn't put his trust in God. And so he was forsaken. I want us to think about something. What does forsaking God look like in the life of his children? You see the example in history from Asa. What does it look like with us in general? Several things here. First of all, it looks like walking by sight, not by faith. Now, 2 Corinthians 5, 7 says... We walk by faith, not by sight. Forsaking God is the opposite. You walk by sight, not by faith. Twenty years of peace after the war with Ethiopia had misled Asa into thinking that he was bringing peace to his kingdom by his own strength and not by the strength of God. That he didn't need the help of God. And so whenever he was facing opposition, he appealed to the world instead of God. And from a worldly point of view, that made sense. Politically, that made perfect sense. But the Bible doesn't make any sense to the world. The Bible doesn't make worldly sense. If you go by the world's rationale, that's living by sight. But if you trust in God, put Him first, that's walking by faith. And it's either one or the other. Either God comes first or your own wisdom comes first. Forsaking the Lord is walking by sight, not by faith. Number two, it looks like pride that ignores God's sovereignty and his strength. We always need to trust in God. But it may be true that we need to keep our guard up most of all when we're facing the smaller challenges in life. As I said at the beginning of the lesson, it's in the smaller things that we drop our guard and we're unaware. When you're faced with a hardship, when, when you're facing illness or loss, trials in life, family problems, that's when you're praying to God, that's when your, your antenna is up, that's when you're alert and watchful, but it's in the little everyday challenges that we usually fall. And that's the problem with pride. Pride is dropping your guard, relying only on yourself, never looking to God, thinking you can do it all on your own. Pride goes before destruction. Proverbs 16, 18. And it's forsaking God. Number three, it looks like trusting in the gift instead of the giver. Now, was it wrong for Asa to go to the physicians when he had a physical problem? Of course not. I mean, it's not wrong to go to the doctor when you're sick. You need to go to the doctor when you're sick. But what was wrong about it is he didn't recognize that God was behind the physicians. In that case, the physicians are the gift and God is the giver. 
But Asa's mind didn't go above the physicians. Stayed down on the earth. He didn't give glory to the giver. And he didn't pray to the giver. He didn't acknowledge the giver. And so the gift didn't do him any good. We need to be careful and know that ultimately all good things come from God. James 1.17. Finally, it's taking advantage of God's patience. Peter told the scoffers of his day in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, The Lord is not slow concerning his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And sometimes we mistake God's patience for his inability to act on our behalf. And we take advantage of it. Maybe he's not there. Maybe he's not going to punish me. You may not suffer consequences immediately for your sin, but consequences will come. And the longer we stay in the sin, the worse it is for us. Because eventually we find that we've drifted so far away from God, we can't seem to find our way back. Clarence McCartney told this story of a tyrant who called the blacksmith into his kingdom, into his throne room. The blacksmith came in and he ordered him to go make a chain. So he goes and makes a chain, he comes back, presents it to the tyrant, and the tyrant says, go make it a little longer. So the blacksmith goes back, makes it a little longer, comes back, shows him the added length. tyrant says, not long enough, make it longer. So the puzzled blacksmith goes back, and this happens over and over again, until it finally comes in dragging this long chain, and then the tyrant says, wrap him up with that chain and cast him into the fire. Now with us, repeated indulgences, repeated ignorance of the, the patience of God, mistaking it for His overlooking us, is adding to our chain link by link by link. And every time you do it, you're tying yourself up. You're binding yourself more and more and more, making it harder to come back to God. If you're not rowing, if your anchor is not set firmly, you are drifting. Make no mistake about it, you're drifting further and further away from God. It's in those times when it's peaceful and everything seems good that it's most dangerous for you spiritually. Don't take advantage of God's patience. If you're in sin right now, now is the time to do something about it. If you felt distant from the Lord, now is the time to come back to Him. If you need to obey the gospel, today is the day to do it. There is no reason in the whole world not to do that. Look, the prophet's words here to us are the most reasonable words you could ever think of. I mean, just think about how reasonably this is. It may be the most reasonable statement you've ever heard. First of all, the Lord is with you if you are with Him. Now, how can the Lord be with us if we're not with Him? That's a logical impossibility, right? Completely reasonable. The Lord is with you while you are with Him. Number two, if you seek Him, He will be found by you. Isn't it reasonable that a benevolent, loving God who's kind toward us would want to be found? God doesn't play hide and seek with us. He wants to dwell with us. It makes sense that if we seek him, he would be found by us. And then he says, if you forsake him, 
He will forsake you. Why would God force us to be in His presence if we don't want Him there? So of course He forsakes us if we forsake Him. It's the most reasonable advice you could ever get. No one can argue with it. And so why do it? Recognize the world is an ocean and you are on a boat and you've got to anchor. You've got to have hope. You've got to hang on to it. And you've got to row. Seek the Lord and He will be found by you. If you're seeking Him today and you feel a little lost and you need some help this morning, we're going to sing an invitation song encouraging you to come. Come right now as we stand together and as we sing.